All right, there's still people coming in, but I'm going to uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started with. Uh, um, well, we won't get started. We'll continue on in chapter one. Um, I have no hope whatsoever that we will finish chapter one tonight. Just uh, letting you know ahead of time. Um, but it's okay. I think it's okay. Anyway, we'll find out. God, our gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that you grant your people to gather together to study your word and to study the work of men who have studied your word and who have devoted their lives to it. We do thank you for the Westminster Divines, the way that they were willing to give everything to produce a, uh, uh, documents that were worthy, Lord, of consideration, documents that strove to create unity within uh, the kingdom, the United Kingdom of England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, and although, Lord, uh, they did not achieve the unity that they wanted, surely it was not because of their lack of desire to see uh, a Christian unity established within the British Isles, but yet they blessed us greatly with uh, their thoughts on Scripture, and while we know that they were not inspired or infallible, we know, Lord, that these things are very, very helpful. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, stand on their shoulders and see further we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right. So taking a look now at uh, <clears throat> one of the, uh, the things that we were talking about uh, before was the reasons that we believe that Scripture is Scripture. And we talked about the internal evidences that, um, uh, that point to the divine origin of Scripture. Uh, so, for instance, uh, the, the fact that, um, <coughs> excuse me. The incomparable sublimity of the doctrines contained in the scriptures, and they're revealing many truths which could not be discovered by human reason. Uh, nature or reason is the way that they put it. Also, uh, the extent and purity of their precepts, rule of action or conduct, the representation which they give of the character and moral administration of God, the exact adaptation of the revelation they contain to the state and wants of man. In other words, Scripture tells the truth about us, whereas so many other things do not. The entire harmony of their several parts, though written by different persons and in different ages. Scripture was written over uh, a period of over a thousand years, and yet all of it tells the same story of redemption. Uh, the harmony is perfect. It doesn't contradict itself. The majesty of their style and the scope and tendency of the whole to advance the glory of God and secure the salvation of men. All of these things should persuade us, in one sense, that the scriptures are true. Will they, however, is the great question. Hello, Rhoda. Hello. Will they be sufficient, though? No. I'm going to go ahead and answer no, they're not. Why? Yes, Joy. Yes, regeneration is necessary is, is quite correct in order for us to, uh, to really believe uh, in the, uh, the truth of, of Scripture, to have our eyes open. Now, can we adopt a tradition that Scripture is true? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were talking the other day, uh, or actually it was just last night, wasn't it? Uh, we were talking about the fact that uh, when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, one of the most fertile fields uh, for getting new converts is amongst um, nominal Southern Baptists because they've been taught uh, to esteem the scriptures highly, but they have no idea what they teach. And so they are able to twist the scriptures into a pretzel and teach them falsehood. So... Um, no, we, we confess that it will not be enough. So let's go to the next slide. So only the Holy Spirit can fully persuade us. Uh, and we have some scriptures here that uh, make that evident. Can everybody read the slide? All right, then I'm not going to do all the reading this time. Uh, William Anderson, would you mind reading the uh, top one? 2 Corinthians 30. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. All right. So Paul there is dealing with the, uh, the issue of the fact that uh, the Jews were very zealous to read the word of God, weren't they, in the, in the synagogues on a regular basis. In fact, in John chapter 5, he says, you know, you study the scriptures, but because in them you, you think you're going to find life. Do we find life in the scriptures? 
Yes, absolutely. That's where we find eternal life. But they didn't find him because, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3, the veil remains. All right? In our unregenerate state, we cannot come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We're never going to find him in the scriptures. We're never going to believe upon him. And so you can have somebody who's an expert in the substance of scripture, yet who does not believe a word of it. And that's what happens in a lot of Bible faculties and secular colleges. I mean, I, I don't doubt Bart Ehrman in one sense knows um, the Bible better than I do. He's certainly better at the original languages by, by a long shot than I am. But he doesn't know the Bible because he doesn't know the Savior. Even though he was raised in an evangelical household, he absolutely rejected it. He doesn't believe the word. Um, and he doesn't, therefore his understanding is still veiled. He goes to the scripture and he doesn't find the living Christ within it. And he doesn't find salvation, which should make us very, very sad. And Joy's raising her hand. Yes. Yeah, in, 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 in his case, it's lacking even the ascensus part. There's no uh, accepting of what the, uh, the scriptures say. All right, uh, Rhoda, you want to read the second one? Yes. Okay. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, reinforcing the fact that um, we, we wonder why it is that natural people don't uh, accept the Word of God and don't follow it. It's because they don't understand it. Um, spiritual things are, it's one of the reasons why um, uh, it, it's, Calvinism is a very hard sell to the unregenerate, you know, the, the absolute sovereignty of God and all things. Um, because there's no spiritual discernment and there's no willingness to, you haven't gone through that, uh, that humbling of yourself yet. And, um, you know, God has not become large, he has not become small. So it's very, very difficult to to convince people of, of biblical doctrines, especially the ones that go against our natural sense. Um, who would like to read the next one, volunteers? Go ahead, Nick. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend Right. That's as uh, Christ is walking on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, and he opened up the Old Testament to show them how it was that the Messiah had to die, for instance, uh, in order for salvation to uh, take place. Where would you, if you wanted to show somebody in the Old Testament that Christ had to die uh, in order for people to be saved, that the Messiah would have to be uh, put to death, where would you go? Joy is kind of raising her hand, kind of touching her new hairdo. <laughs> Absolutely, there's a uh, as a burning torch. Um, but the issue is that's not absolutely clear, though. Where is it absolutely clear? It's a no. Go ahead, William. I would say Isaiah the Isaiah 53. You know, go straight to Isaiah 53. So while you can find um, uh, you can find Christ foreshadowed, yes, in uh, in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and especially I think in in uh, Genesis 22. Um, you still cannot, um, you don't get it boiled down as, as simply as you do in, uh, say, Isaiah 53. Where's the place in the Psalms we can go where we actually see kind of the vignette from the crucifixion? What is Jesus, what were his words from the... Uh, Psalm 22, yeah. Uh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But, you know, take people to the Old Testament and you'll, you'll show them. But the, the issue is, um, unless their understanding is opened by the Holy Spirit, is it going to, is it going to, um, it, may, it may be the case that objectively they'll be able to see that thing, but there has to be the subjective element as well. The, the heart, their heart actually has to be touched by these things. In other words, uh, it's not enough for me to persuade Molly that, uh, that Jesus is the Savior, that he's the Messiah, and so on. That's not enough for her to go to, to heaven. She has to personally believe that Jesus is her Messiah, her Savior, that he died for her sins, and so on. So uh, these are very important. 
And we're all hoping, Molly, that you already have, right? Good. <laughs> all right. Molly's on board. Her understanding has been enlightened that she might comprehend the scriptures. Uh, all right. Molly, since I mentioned you, you can read the last one. Yes? Yes. Okay. Okay, so there again, uh, we have the importance of the paraclete, the comforter, the helper, who will help us to understand the word, uh, to bring to our remembrance all of the things that I said to you and so on. Uh, and that also speaks of the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the inspiration of scripture. How was it that these men remembered what Christ had said to them, remembered those, uh, those moments spent on the road for three years uh, with the Savior? Um, and the answer is, because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, bringing to mind the, uh, um, the events that had occurred and so on. Thankfully, it was not just you know, somebody with my kind of memory by themselves recalling or trying to recall what uh, the spiritual leader that you'd been with for three years had been saying on the road. Otherwise, it would have been a terrible, I think. Uh, anyway, But OK, so moving on. All right. So this is A. A. Hodge talking about the change of heart that takes place within us. Jamie, could you read that? The scriptures to the unregenerate man are like light to the blind. They may be felt as the rays of the sun are felt by the blind, but they cannot be fully seen. The Holy Spirit opens the blinded eyes and gives due sensibility to the diseased heart. And thus assurance comes from the evidence of spiritual experience. When first regenerated, he begins to set the scriptures to the test of experience. And the more he advances, the more he proves them true. And the more he discovers of their limitless breadth and fullness, and their evident, evidently the, uh, designed adaptation to all human wants under all possible conditions. Okay. I thought that was a particularly beautiful statement of the way it works. What's the application of that to our kids? And to child rearing. Okay, Song, you haven't spoken a lot. Um, so we can teach them the scriptures while they're young, and they can mm -hmm. memorize everything and anything in the Bible, but until they have the Holy Spirit reveal the meaning of what's behind the content, anybody can read a book and, and know what's in it, but to understand it is not the same. It's like the difference between knowing. Right. So one of the things that we need to remember is we need to not just be teaching the scriptures to our kids. We need to be preaching the gospel to our children, uh, aiming at their regeneration, um, calling upon them to close with Christ and so on. So, yes, Sujin. Archibald, right. Archibald Alexander, actually, in his uh, Thoughts on Religious Experience, which is a tremendous book um, uh, at many different levels, because he really does go into uh, the issue of conversion in depth. But he makes the point that most people who come to faith actually come to faith in their youth. Uh, and he talks about there's a, there's a certain pliability. Even the scripture talks about it. The longer that we resist, the more hardened we become. As, uh, as time comes, uh, goes past. Um, children are much more pliable when they're, they're younger. They're, uh, uh, their hearts are not as hardened uh, against uh, the gospel. 
I mean, my heart had to be pretty, you know, it had to be smashed by the law before uh, uh, there was any, any room for the seed. Um, that's not to say that we don't all need regeneration. It's just the case, uh, and uh, Alexander observes that the younger they are, the more likely they are to come to faith. Uh, and that the longer it's put off, the longer it's resisted, the, the harder the heart generally becomes. So uh, anyway, I, I would recommend um, uh, him on that uh, particular subject. That's just the way the Lord works it out. Not to say that we don't see plenty of adult conversions. It does happen, but uh, it's generally the case that the younger ones. Okay, so um, anybody want to tackle John Murray? You don't have to read it with the original Scott Saxon if you don't want to. Okay, Nick had his hand up. So the only sure rule and guide in all of faith, life, and practice that we're going to find here on this earth is to be found in Scripture. Now, that's not to say we can't find helps for our life, but uh, at the same time, the only uh, real guide, the only pole star that we can navigate by uh, is Scripture. It's the only thing that will bring us uh, safely home to heaven, uh, which gets us to the next, the next section. That's more of an intro to section six. So if you want to, you can go ahead and um, you can either read it off the slide or you can actually read it in your copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is uh, 920 in the back of the, uh, the mauve. I don't know. Is it purple? Is it plum? Is it mauve? What, what color is this? Burgundy. Burgundy. Holy mackerel, man. Oh, I love the Blind. Mauve. It's mauve. All right. The burgundy hymnal. Um, Section six. Who would like to read section six for us? Who's got thoughts? All right, I'll read it. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature, and Christian prudence according to the golden rule, general rules rather, of the Word, which are always to be observed. All right, so 1.6 says uh, several, uh, several things. Uh, all of them are very uh, important. Okay, first off, it tells us that Scripture is sufficient. So let's deal with the sufficiency of Scripture. Going to the next slide, sorry. Uh, the inspired Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are a complete rule of faith and practice. They embrace the whole of, uh, of whatever supernatural revelation God now makes to men and are abundantly sufficient for all the practical necessities of men or communities. They contain all we need to know for faith and practice. Now, is this believed, generally speaking, by unbelievers? No, no absolutely not. Okay? They, they view the, uh, the Bible, generally speaking, as irrelevant and no longer a good rule uh, and guide for our life or our practice and certainly not to be the basis for our faith. But the more important question is, is that generally believed now by Christians? No. As a general rule, it's not. We have um, the entire charismatic uh, idea that uh, um, says that new revelations are not only good, but they're necessary. Okay? That it's, we need to continue um, to hear 
uh, from God every, every day with new special revelations. Also, um, in terms of progressive Christianity, we need to um, we need to update Scripture on a regular basis. Okay, we uh, there's some good there's some stuff that's good in it, of course, but uh, there's a bunch of stuff that we need to get rid of. Like for instance, we all know that Paul was uh, homophobic and a misogynist, right? No, we don't know that good. <laughs> I just want to make sure that. But uh, there are plenty of professing Christians who believe that. And so what do they do? They simply, they delete those, those sections. And certainly, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he was nasty and vengeful, right? So we don't want to, uh, you know, there's certain sections in places like Leviticus and so on. We, we can do away with that. In fact, most of the Old Testament we can get rid of. We just need to consider the lilies portions of, um, of the New Testament, right? Where Jesus waxes poetical. We are, we're, we're loving that, but... Uh, um, we, for instance, we can read all of John 8 and the, um, uh, the tale of the woman who was taken in adultery and not realize that at the end, what are his uh, final words to that woman? Do you know? In John chapter 8? What did Nick say? Go forth and sin no more. Yeah, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Sin no more. Is there a possibility that she was involved in sexual sin? Yes, there is a possibility. There's, in fact, not just a possibility. There's a yes, definitely. So anyway, um, but we don't, we don't notice that. We, we just notice the, the Pharisees taking it on the nose uh, because they were all hypocrites. All right, so all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Does this mean, let me ask you, Malat, that all I need to learn... And no, in order to fly a plane, is to be found in Scripture. No. Okay. Well, then how is Scripture sufficient if I don't learn how to fly from the Bible? I mean, doesn't it say thoroughly equipped? Yeah. Joy? Well, it says thoroughly equipped, but it qualifies it appropriately with regard to instruction. It's instruction and righteousness. Okay. So the Bible only teaches moral lessons, is what you're telling me. Well, you, you said um, instruction in righteousness is the is the key. Well, okay, so I just go to the Bible to find out what's good and what's bad. Nothing else. Does it tell me anything about creation? where you're flying a plane to and what you're going to do with it. So. All right, no, the Bible obviously does not teach us Euclidean uh, geometry. Uh, it does not teach us Italian cookery. It does not teach us uh, a host of different things that are useful, all right, because it's not intended to. However, it will teach us, for instance, not to put ground glass into our recipes. It will teach us uh, not to fly our planes into buildings. It will teach us... Uh, not to use our geometry uh, in, in ways that are um, evil. So um, we, we learn how to live our lives. Uh, all the things necessary for our faith, what we believe, our life, how we go about ordering it, and the practice of our religion is to be found in Scripture, either explicitly, as we're taught these things, or implicitly and can be deduced. When we say deduced, what does that mean? When I deduce something, it's elementary. To what? It's good deduction there. What, what, is, uh, what is it when I deduce something? Uh, yeah, a, a deduction is a, a reasonable um, conclusion based upon the, uh, the evidence before me or the material before me. So there are things that I can observe that will teach me, um, and things that I can observe in Scripture that will teach me things that aren't explicitly said, that aren't explicitly uh, prescribed. I'm not told explicitly to do them, but I can uh, figure them out by reading uh, the Scriptures, by watching, for instance, how uh, people lived. 
uh, the best examples, that is. So, all right. So uh, there are people, however, when it comes to the sufficiency of the, uh, the scriptures, they, they throw up other things and say, no, there are things that are alongside, uh, that come alongside the scriptures that we also have to listen to. What, do they, uh, what are the things that are, are traditionally also thrown up? We've discussed one of them already. Tradition. Okay, the traditions of the church, for instance. Uh, human traditions, human reason is often homo mensura, man is the measure of all things, is usually what's used as a trump card these days in the modern age. But is there an institution out there that states that its traditions uh, and beliefs are equally binding along with scripture? The Roman Catholic Church primarily would be the, uh, the issue. Although interestingly enough, we give the Eastern Orthodox a pass, but they're just as traditional as the, uh, as the Roman Catholics in, uh, in many ways. So what about the tradition and authority of the church regarding tradition? Um, who would like to read that? Who, who? William, go ahead. Regarding tradition, the answer is said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, and he who caused a curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God, then he need not honor his father and mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, for their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctors the commandments of men. All right. So here we have um, uh, something that Jesus is saying to who? Who is he? He's hitting, he's hitting on the Pharisees again. And again, in the end, he does this because they uh, have all of these rabbinic traditions that have been added to, tri uh, to scripture. This one is the tradition of Korban. Uh, Korban was basically that uh, it was, um, and uh, surprisingly enough, denominations today will do their own version of Korban. Uh, it's, I dedicate my material wealth to the temple when I die. All right, this is my, uh, this is my last and ultimate good work. Therefore, um, the material possessions that I own, are they really mine? Now, I'm just using them while I'm alive. They actually belong to, uh, um, they already belong to the temple treasury. Um, so when mom and dad are starving to death and they say, son, can you help us out? I can say, I'd love to, really. I mean, my heart goes out to you, mom and dad. But um, you see, everything that I own is already dedicated to God. So no, I can't help you out. Yes, Jamie. I think sometimes there's even, at least one way I've heard it explained, worse than that, they would, they would sell their property um, or um, you know, they would, I guess what, in the Old Testament there was, if you dedicated your property or land to, to God, you could um, pay something to get, it, uh, to get it back, right? But uh, there's a way to redeem it. Yeah. But the priest, the priest would have to set the price for it. And so they would dedicate, while their parents were alive, they would dedicate the land. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it belonged to the, to the church, or to, to God, to the temple. And then when their, their parents died, they would redeem it, but the priest buddies would give it a low valuation. So it didn't cost as much to redeem it. Got it, got it. Anyway, so. All right, I, I, had not, I was not aware of that particular uh, uh, practice. Um, so in any event, but the, he's pointing out that, and there's several instances, aren't there, of, uh, of this. What's another example where traditions, uh, they were putting their traditions ahead of the teaching of the Bible? Remember in eating, give me an ex eating example. Eating, eating, eating. They're washing the hands. Yeah, they, uh, the Pharisees come to, uh, to Christ and they ask, you know, why don't your, you and your disciples wash your hands before eating? Because they're concerned about germs, right? No, it's ceremonial uncleanness. Uh, you might have touched a dead body accidentally. You might have touched somebody who had touched a dead body, brushed up against a Gentile or something. You've got uncleanness now on your hands. You touch your food. What does it become? Unclean. Then you eat it and you become unclean, ceremonial unclean. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to go through a ceremonial washing um, uh, thing we're going to do. Um, where do we find that in the Bible? The ceremonial washing before you eat your food that God has appointed. Find it in second delusions. Okay, um, no, there is no there is no commandment. Okay, but 
By the time Jesus is calling them on the carpet for this, how long has this been practiced? Hundreds of years. Okay, it's not just your, his dad practiced it and taught him. His dad and 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 his dad all were telling me to do this. Okay, um, and so it's a tradition that's of long establishment. And when you go against tradition that's been around for that long, what do people call you? A heretic or a radical? Crazy. Um, you know, going, you're pushing against, but what are you actually doing? What was Jesus in that moment? He was a reformer. And a reformer goes back to Ad Fontes, the source, goes back to the word. So he was bringing them back to the word. Your traditions are useless, okay? They, they don't help you. Um, in fact, your hearts are far from me. So the tradition and authority of the church, if it's not from the scriptures, okay, if it's not specifically taught within uh, the word of God or can be derived by good and necessary consequence from the word, then it's just the word of men, okay? And it doesn't matter how antique the tradition is. And, uh, I mean, how long, how old, as, uh, as one Puritan put it, does a lie have to be before it becomes the truth? What's the answer to that? Never. It never becomes the truth, all right? Uh, Abraham Lincoln once asked an audience that he was, uh, he was uh, in the husk hustings, he was making a point, and uh, he said, if you count a dog's tail as a leg, how many legs does a dog have? And the answer, of course, is four, but everybody said five. And he said, no, you may count a dog's tail as a leg, but it isn't a leg. A dog still only has four legs, you know? Um, it doesn't change the nature of reality. And tradition doesn't change uh, the, the nature of reality as well. So it doesn't matter what we say God likes, unless God has said that he likes it in his word. It's just our tradition. So, and there's plenty of things that we've added throughout you know, hundreds of years of church history uh, to our own practice. Do Protestants have their traditions, have no basis in scripture? We've got a few, yeah, more than. Um, but if grandma liked it, are we ever gonna get rid of it? Probably not, probably not. So. Okay, moving to the, uh, the next. Uh, there are also, uh, there's an issue of uh, good and necessary consequences. Um, uh, we derive things from the scripture by good and necessary consequence. Uh, it's a wonderful little Puritan expression. Uh, who wants to read that? John. And maintain the profession of the scriptures and do not insist that every article of religion is contained in scripture in so many words. But we have hold that conclusions fairly deduced from the declarations of the word of God are as truly parts of divine revelation as if they were expressly taught in the sacred volume. Robert Shaw. Okay. Robert Shaw was a great Scottish commentator, uh, free church commentator on the uh, Westminster uh, confession, incidentally, if you ever have a chance to pick up uh, his commentary, it is well worth the price. But what are some instances of doctrines taught in Scripture by good and necessary consequence rather than explicitly? There are some that are very important. Yes, Jamie. Trinity. The Trinity. Okay. What is there a single verse that will comprehensively teach the Trinity uh, anywhere in Scripture? Single verse. No. Although, I saw that hand there, David. Um, <laughs> there, are, there, are, uh, there are verses that reinforce the doctrine of the Trinity, certainly. And when we take them all together and put them uh, together systematically, can we come up with uh, a very strong body of evidence in favor of the Trinity? Absolutely we can. However, a, a single verse that teaches uh, a comprehensive understanding of the Trinity doesn't exist. There are many verses. Uh, that speak to it, but not one where Paul says, okay, let me, I'm going to sit down and explain to you all of the ins and outs of, uh, we're going to talk about the hypostatic union, and then we're going to, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't do that. Nonetheless, these things are taught. Give me another uh, good and necessary consequence. This one's very important to us. Yes, Jamie? Infant baptism. There you go. Um, so that's, that's another one that we, uh, we, take very, uh, we take very seriously. We believe it's taught within Scripture. I didn't simply do it because I'm, it's a holdover from Roman Catholicism. I honestly believe that infant baptism is taught 
um, within scripture. But do I, uh, can I point to a, a single verse that says explicitly baptize your babies? No, I can't. But I can come up with a theology, which I believe is taught explicitly within scripture. Um, and by good and necessary consequence, we derive that particular teaching. Especially if you have an understanding of the covenant, the relationship between circumcision and baptism, it becomes a no-brainer. But nonetheless, not all things are taught by good, uh, not all things are taught explicitly, some are derived um, by good and necessary consequence. All right, any questions about that? Or do we move on? Will we move on. Avanti. All right. What? Didn't David have something too? David? Did David have a question? No, okay. Shaking head vigorously. Okay, so who wants to deal with the authority of the church? Okay, Nick, go ahead and read. Just keep reading, man. Regarding the authority of the church, and, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. All right. The authority of the church is ministerial and declarative, not legislative. Uh, so what things should, be, should the church command and what things shouldn't it command? Before we answer or we seek to answer that question, let me uh, try to frame something uh, here. Jesus says that all authority, okay, this is spiritual authority has been given to who? Jesus, okay. So therefore, he tells his disciples to go out into the world and to teach what? All the things that he's commanded, Okay. Um, is there a legislative power given to the church in the Great Commission? What's a legislative power? To create laws. To create laws. Does Jesus give the church the power to create laws in the Great Commission? No. So does Paul call himself, I, who am a, uh, a king of the gospel, or a, um, a congressman, or a senator, that would be a better uh, example. A senator of the gospel, do hereby tell you these things. What does he call himself? Servant or an slave or an ambassador of the gospel specifically, okay? Uh, what does an ambassador do? He gives you somebody else's words, right? He, he brings, uh, this is the message of my king to you. Now, does he have authority to write a message for the king and then give it to him? No. no. In fact, he's going to get in severe trouble if he does that. So um, we say that the authority of the church, and this was, uh, this was a big deal when this was written, because um, in the backdrop, of course, was the Church of England. England, the Church of England. Did they think that they had legislative power? Yes. In fact, the 39 articles specifically say the, power, uh, the church hath the power to decree rites and ceremonies, okay? That God had given them the power to, for instance, say, this day is special. This is St. Swithin's Day. You're all going to come to church on St. Swithin's Day, and we're going to uh, swithin it up that particular day and, and uh, celebrate using the traditions that we've created. Uh, or, um, for instance, and then behind the Church of England, we have another bunch larger uh, church, the Roman Catholic Church. Do they believe they have legislative power? Absolutely. All right. They have the power to agree. Um, uh, and the Pope, speaking from the chair of Peter or ex-cathedra, is speaking in the name of who? Christ. He's the vicar of Christ on earth. His words, literally, on, the, um, on issues of doctrine and morals have as much weight, they say, as the words of Peter, because he is the modern-day Peter. So if he makes a, uh, a declaration, we have to view that as God's commandments, okay? So, well, we don't. No, we don't have to. We don't. So, but, so the Westminster divines, however, are saying, uh-uh. He's a minister. He acts in the name of someone else, and he declares what they have said. 
Okay, that is what a minister does. He ministers in the name of, uh, of another individual. He applies that which the other person has already commanded. So, for instance, the Prime Minister of England acts in the name of Her Majesty the Queen, right? He's supposed to be applying. It used to be the case that the Prime Minister was supposed to be applying the will of the, the monarch. Uh, of course, the, the power the power current changed, so now it's the monarch acts as the rubber stamp uh, for the will of the, uh, of the prime minister rather than the vice versa. But um, the, uh, the way it's supposed to be is I'm supposed to be ministering in whose name? I'm supposed to be ministering in the name of God and applying the things that Jesus has said. But I cannot declare to you and tell you you have to do this thing if God didn't say do it, Right? So therefore, can I, if it's a good tradition, it's old and stuff, and I, I like it, can I say you've got to do it? No, I can't. I don't have the authority to do that. So um, we try to avoid to do that. All right, so what things should the church command and what things shouldn't it command? This is kind of, at this point, a no-brainer, hopefully. Anybody? What kind of things should the church command? What God has commanded. Give me some examples of things that, for, that the church should command in the modern era. How about something to do with Sunday? I don't know. Go to church. All right. Don't what? Don't, don't, don't beat your wife? Did you say that? <laughs> go to church. And, you said don't beat your wife. Was that specific? So go to church, don't beat your wife. Got it. That's the only two. Don't what? I'm not going to say bad examples, but uh, all right. So others that we uh, can think of explicit commands: be baptized, repent, and be baptized. Do I have a right to declare that? Yeah. Absolutely, I do. Yeah. Uh, when we were in Alaska, there was a, an officer having a conversation with him, and uh, he's excited because he said that my daughter finally has decided to get baptized. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, that's great. I hope she didn't view room cleaning the same way. You know, that's the, right. Uh, yeah. that I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling that. Don't you get right. <laughs> So, all right. What kind of thing shouldn't we command? Shouldn't. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Do I have a right to uh, arrange your households? No. Mm -mm, I don't. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, although, are there some jobs I can say, I can say that God has said, don't do this particular job. What are some jobs, for instance, that I can command you not to? Uh... Strippers. Yes, no, no strippers, no holy strippers, okay. Um, others we can think of. Abortionist, for instance. Uh, it's not a, a job that any Christian should ever, uh, thief, prostitute, you know, these are uh, all, all things that go directly against the... Um, uh, the word of God. Hitman, assassins, and so on. Um, these are also out of limits. Sorry, guys. Those of you who are planning on stuff after the military. Uh, chain email writer. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Things, things that cut right across Christian liberty. Right. Um, there are there are churches within this town. You cannot become a member of if you do not obey their command not to drink, uh, not to go see movies. Um, for women, no wearing um, no wearing pants, uh, no chewing gum. Believe it or not, there's still that uh, um, that one out there. No wearing makeup, no cutting your hair, um, no tattoos. That's another one. Um, there's <laughs> You know, uh, a bunch where we have the, the commands of men that are being applied to the people of God in a commandment-oriented way. Um, I have no right to bind the conscience of men with anything except the moral law. Now, can I say don't commit adultery and command men not to do that? I absolutely can't. Can I say don't fornicate in, in this world, which is very difficult? Can I command that? I can try. <laughs> no, but, but 
Yeah, as long as it's in keeping with the commandments of God. Don't, don't beat people up. Don't lie. Don't lie on your taxes. Um, don't, don't swear falsely. Uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Um, all of these things you can command, but when it comes to the opinions of men, no, you cannot command, right? Yes? All right. Let's move on then. But again, we will never understand Scripture without uh, illumination. Um, so uh, I'll read Hodge and then I'll get two volunteers for the Scripture. Nevertheless, a personal spiritual illumination by the power of the Holy Ghost is necessary in every case for the practical and saving knowledge of the truth embraced in the Scriptures. This necessity does not result from any want of either completeness or clearness in the revelation, but from the fact that man in a state of nature is carnal and unable to discern the things of the Spirit of God. Um, who wants to read John? Oh, that is why, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> that is why the Pharisees remain blind guides. You search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, um, one of the things that we need to understand also is that uh, one sixth though touches on the issue of circumstances. Okay, it talked about there are some circumstances common uh, to society and the church that the church is empowered to order. All right, so let's talk about that. Let's go to the next. Uh, a circumstance is determined in the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. That shouldn't be WFC, it should be WCF. Uh, WCF 1.6, clearly enough. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. In Gillespie, Owen, and Bannerman, the distinction is between these thing, those things that are circusacra and insacris. There are things which are religious in themselves, and he includes prayer, singing, praise to God. Uh, while there are things surrounding religious events, circa, which are not religious themselves, speaking, instructing, singing. These things are to be governed by the light of nature and Christian prudence. The scriptures will never forbid singing seven hymns, but the light of nature and Christian prudence might dictate that seven hymns might be too many or not enough for a particular service. That's uh, T. David Gordon in his excellent essay on the regulator principle, which I would recommend to you. Uh, so what would be an element and what would be a circumstance of worship? Let's see if we can pick this out. If you got this distinction, you are way ahead of the average Christian. What's an element of worship? Give me some of the elements of worship. Things that have to be in a worship service for it to be a worship service that are part of prayer. the prayer, prayer, preaching of the word, reading of the scriptures, singing praises, right? Okay, we have the, the preaching and the reading of, uh, of Scripture and so on. All of those things are, are elements. What's a circumstance of worship, though? Joy? The, um, the bulletin, the, the, um, the slides, the, the pulpit, the piano. Yeah, the all, all of those things are, are circumstances. In other words, they aid. And one of the things to remember is, okay, is this something that aids in worship or is an actual element of worship itself? All right. Uh, incidentally, we forgot the sacraments when we were talking about um, uh, the elements of worship. They're, they are elements. So, for instance, um, the, the kind of bowl we use, is it required that it be a, a silver bowl? When we're circumcised, uh, circumcising. We did. Don't do that here. I'm a no, I am not. Um, so uh, what we got? Yeah, go fix my with that one. It's too late. We're done. We're done. When we baptize, do not bring your children to me for circumcision under any circumstances. Uh, when we baptize, um, you know, uh, adults and children, it doesn't matter what kind of bowl or song we use. However, would it be? Um, there are certain in in circumstances there is often a sanctified common sense that needs to be used. Let me give you an example out of that. Uh, it would be appropriate to use a nice bowl, okay, made of clay or metal or something like that that looks nice. If I grab a bedpan and use that for um, a baptism, is that really appropriate? 
even if it's a clean one? No, of course it's not. Okay, that would be, um, so while there's nothing explicit in, in scripture that says don't use a bedpan to circumcise somebody or a chamber pot in an, old, uh, in an older age, yet uh, common sense, sanctified common sense should tell us that. Now, is there anything that says we shouldn't worship at two in the morning? No, nothing explicitly, so I'll see you at two. All right. Common sense. No, you won't. No. <laughs> so, and that's that's simply the case. Common sense tells us it's not. Uh, this is a circumstance, and yet uh, there are things that need to be ordered uh, correctly by common sense. Yes, Joy. Okay. So the inference with respect to the Lord's day makes it a is it a circumstance or not? The the Lord's day? No. No, we're told to, uh, we are told to uh, assemble on the Lord's Day because it's the day that uh, Christ rose from the dead. Um, and we, we see the example of the apostles. That's the day, for instance, on which uh, Paul preached his mega long sermon uh, in, up till uh, midnight. So um, uh, we, have, we have the example of the fact that Christ uh, appeared there uh, and the people are told not to. Um, not to stop assembling themselves together. So um, that's, not a, that's not a circumstance within the day upon which you worship. The Lord's day is to be sanctified uh, with worship and prayer. So, but the time on the Lord's day, that is something that we, uh, we get to decide. Okay, Nick is scratching his head. Question, would it? Yes. Could that be a good and necessary consequence, the Lord's day specifically? Well, there, there is a certain amount of deduction on yeah, what, yeah. what day should we worship? Yeah. Um, but the deduction is so, it, it's so clear, so explicit. Uh, I mean, this is one, um, really you only get, the, the only uh, movements in history that have ever said that no, it shouldn't be Sunday, it should be Saturday, upon which we're worshiping, were the Ebionites, uh, who were specifically revolting against the, uh, the Gentile inclusion in the church, and uh, they were essentially Judaizers, and modern Messianic uh, Christians who are wannabe Jews um, or trying to trying to be wannabe Jews and doing a really bad job of it, um, and Seventh-day Adventists. That's true. So there have been there have been movements that have have tried specifically to move the Lord's Day to Saturday, but or the day of worship to Saturday. But uh, this is one that the, the the consensus of the church throughout it's it's such a no-brainer. You know, it's always been Sunday. It's the day of the resurrection, guys. This is the event that we, uh, in fact, many Messianic Jews have tried desperately to try to move uh, the resurrection to Saturday, which is just wild, but moving on. Yes? So, oftentimes when uh, in discussions about the regular principle come up in regards to worship, um, sometimes the discussion also, also gets into musical instruments and things like that. Yeah. So, what's your view on that? Okay, um, and I'll open the, uh, the floor to discussion of this in, uh, afterwards. I, I view music to be a circumstance in regulating the singing of the congregation. What's the element? The element is singing. Music is not an element of worship, all right? Uh, music, um, when properly, or musical instruments, when properly used, uh, help us to stay in tune. I need them simply because I don't read music and I'm terrible when it comes to learning new, I, I'm awful when it comes to learning new. Uh, so it is definitely an aid in my uh, singing of sung praise. Um, the way that music is treated in many churches uh, is as an element, and there I think it's a problem. For instance, when you've got the praise band that's just thumping away by themselves, you know, uh, there's no such thing really as a sanctified guitar solo. I don't care how good you think you are. Um, and uh, music is often used to manipulate because we know that we can bring people's emotions up and down uh, simply by the, the tones and so on that we are using. That is a bad use of music. Um, do we have to have music in a worship service? Can we sing without music? Can we sing without music? Yeah, we can. You know, it helps with when you got a pitch bite. You're using music as though singing isn't included in the concept of music. Well, now could we sing without musical accompaniment? Okay, yes, we could. Um, can we sing without music? Yes, we could sing rap. No, moving on. Um, sorry, I couldn't. I couldn't. Uh, but, so where do I, I view music as a circumstance that aids in congregational singing, which is the element. 
Uh, if it has become more than simply the circumstance, then we have a problem. If music, um, music by which I mean the playing of an instrument, uh, becomes in and of itself the, um, uh, the element, then you've got a problem. That's, uh, uh, Joy had her hand up and then Nick. Yes, no, Joy. I was, not, I was scratching my head. Oh, you were legit? That was okay. a real scratch. Okay, that was a <laughs> legit scratch, not a, it's just one thing I don't understand. Anyway, Joy? I agree, absolutely. What are some other things that we, uh, we commonly see thrown into worship services that are actually not elements and shouldn't be there? The week had some really interesting um, uh, instruments, eating, eating or singing in the past. Sure, sure. Never had a bagpipe. No, hmm? but we have had a bagpipe here. Yes, I know, but that was for your birth. Um, all right, elements are things that are thrown in and treated as elements that have no actual basis in scripture. Like would the lights be a thing? Yes. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Like the laser show and the smoke machines and stuff like that. The what? The the, the font and like uh background video. stuff is uh, powerful. You want me to uh, all right, no more pictures. No more pictures. <laughs> the fog machines are Fog machines. <laughs> and, and putting, you know, the gold dust through the uh, air uh, is... The Holy Spirit. Yes. No. When I go to the Pico Comal, nearby the altar, they pray, or they pray, 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 they there's no call for an altar call within the scripture. Um, one, they're, they're ones that are even more common, though, drama. For instance, skits in a worship service. Now, was drama present in Paul's day and age? No, they didn't have drama or alcoholism back then, believe it or not. So, we know better. Um, and anyway, um, no, the uh, yes, of course they had drama. Did the apostles ever use dramatic presentations as a means of preaching the gospel? No, they did not. Um, uh, even when they were renting theaters, they did not. Uh, they did not actually um, use them to conduct plays, but rather continued to preach. Um, so drama is one of them. Videos, very, very common. Uh, sound and light shows, uh, puppet shows, puppet shows in the middle of worship, clown performances in the middle of worship, comedy. I have actually uh, Christian comedy, Christian strongman performance in the middle of a worship service. Um, you know, breaking chains. Uh, not, the power team. Uh, yeah, the, the power team. I mean, that's been very common. Um, another one that is uh, hideously common and, and incredibly cliched is somebody standing here creating an artwork while the, uh, the, the preaching is going on, supposedly illustrating the, the sermon. Uh, usually it happens in Pentecostal churches, and the idea is the Holy Spirit is, you know, actively um, moving him to determine, or her, how to uh, to illustrate and things like that. Yeah. 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 No, it's a. I used, to, um, uh, I, I used to think that the Church of England was over the top in its decorations until I went to Austria. And I'm like, holy mackerel, this is what you can't. I'm like, and it's even tacky. Come on. It's just, anyway. Um, but yes, uh, that, that's, that's uh, long been a thing. Um, one of the best uh, 
One of the best essays that was ever written on this particular subject was done by Abraham Kuyper. He, um, he delivered it as one of the Stone Lectures in Princeton um, in either the late 19th, no, it was early 20th century. And he, um, uh, it was called the uh, antithesis between, um, the antithesis between, uh, it's either sense and revelation or sensuality and revelation. Um, Yes, yeah, so the, the idea being um, that there is a certain type of worship that's designed to appeal to the senses. Uh, it's, the, um, it's the worship of the Aztecs, it's the worship of the Egyptians, it's the worship of the Romans, but it's also the, the worship of the Roman Catholics, where it's, it's, it smells, it's, um, it's uh, oral stimuli, it's um, colors, it's all of those things that uh, are designed to um, to hit uh, the senses and to stimulate a reaction, an emotional reaction through that. Um, whereas we have a revealed religion, which is designed to... Uh, between symbolism and revelation. Symbolism and revelation. You're absolutely right. I can't believe I did. I've been complimenting, uh, or rather complimenting, I've been uh, recommending the book for years. I got the title wrong now. I'm getting old. It's Alzheimer's. Okay. Pretty soon I'm going to be walking around like, and you'll have to come up here, Joy, and guide me off the, uh, off the podium and stuff like that. So, all right. Let's go, to, um, let's go to the prayer part of the evening now. So, we 